Spotlight with Sarah Hendy. Brought to you by the Isle of Man Arts Council. Fastamai and welcome to the 2019 Spotlight Review of the Year. What a year it's been on our creative little island. There's been more to fit in than I could possibly manage on this year's programmes and this selection of best bits doesn't nearly cover all of the great conversations we've had through 2019. So if I don't play your favourite today, you can find every single episode of Spotlight from 2019 as a downloadable podcast on the Manx Radio website. We begin our review with writer and storyteller Michael Rosen, who told us that parents are feeling the pressure to be entertaining and getting a sort of stage fright when reading books aloud to their children. Yes, that's right. This is some research done by the storytelling game, uh, Rory Story Cubes, and they've found indeed that 54% of parents admit they don't read to their primary school-age children stories every night. One in five parents admit they find it impossible to tell their story, tell their children's stories off the top of their heads. So, uh, yeah, this, these are sad areas to think about, aren't they? Of children not hearing stories read by their parents. Maybe that includes their grandparents. I don't know. Um, and then also the idea that um, parents are thinking, "Oh, I can't tell my child a story. I'm, I'm a bit nervous." Or uh, maybe, maybe it, uh, they, feel, they feel it gets in the way. Yes, there's another bit of the research it says a fifth of parents claim that modern life gets in the way of story time and you think what does that mean was it they're on the phone are they or are they sending emails or what is it that gets in the way of sharing stories with your children watching you tell your stories and um, your, perform your poetry there's a real art to it and I suppose that kind of magic that you bring to these stories it, it's it's very inspiring what what kind of advice would you give to anyone who's sort of struggling with feeling a little I don't know getting a bit of stage fright almost well, for starters, I'd hate to think that my way of storytelling uh, in, uh, put people off and they thought, oh, well, I can't do it like he does. That that would make me very sad because we all tell stories. You know, when we go home at night, we tell the people we live with what happened on the trains and what we saw and how somebody told a story about how they're in trouble in their relationships or whatever. And we all tell stories like that every day. All you have to do when you're with children is hit the same tone you just start talking about things that happen as you start talking about things that happen you can tell it for real or you can start introducing other elements something a bit nutty something a bit weird so you might start off with saying oh well the train was a bit late and then you go well why was it late well obviously because a dragon got stuck on the railway line so instead of it being the usual thing about signal failure right you start inventing something else or if there was you got stuck at the airport because of a snowstorms or something like that you can say well he got stuck at the airport because and then you come up with another story about how the airplane was melting um and it just turned into some rather strange pink putty and so we couldn't get on the plane because it was just this great big ball of pink putty and then we all dived in and we rolled it up into little balls and then threw it at each other so you can just turn the thing that's going on into something else And then once your kid is, you'll see the sort of laughter and the fun that you have with it, or it could be sad things. Um, And and then you can see the incredible pleasure and the trust that your children have in you and the belief they have in you, because this is what we do when we tell each other stories. We're, We're like almost like creatures with our eyes shut, reaching out in the dark and then finding that we trust each other. That's a beautiful way to put it. Um, and in fact, Rory Story Cubes um, are really helping. They found are a way for people to just sort of, I don't know, break the ice with storytelling. 
Well, it's simple, isn't it? You just throw some dice and up pop on the face of the dice. It might be a castle or it might be just a blank speech bubble or it might be a funny face, a sad face. It might be a bee in there or a sheep. And then all you've got to do is spin a yarn, right? And of course, you can throw the cubes. You play any rules you like. You throw the cubes whenever you want. Um, but you throw it at the beginning, throw it halfway through. It's entirely up to you. And you just find mad connections between them. So if you've got a sheep and a castle and a cat, well, I'm sure anybody listening to this could think of a story, couldn't they? Of a sheep, a castle and a cat. Once upon a time, there was this castle. And in the castle, there was, there was, who should we have? Should we have a human as a king or should we have a rat? Yeah, rat, king rat. And then king rat said, I have heard bad things are going on in my kingdom. I have heard that. And then away you go, you see. Um, and then suddenly they roll the cubes, a clock comes up, the clock struck five and the king rat said at five o'clock, everybody in my country. And then you go on like that, you see. And so you just simply take the pictures on the dice and start spinning it around. And we've all got stories in our heads. We've always got, you see, I started being a kind of tyrannical king. Well, you know, how many stories have we read where there have been tyrannical kings or it could be one of those funny kings who doesn't really know what's going on it says i need some help is anyone here who give me some help Meh. i'm the sheep Meh. i can help you really oh that's very good what can you help me with well i know where you can get some really good grass <laughs> yes look just around here by the river and there we are you see Later in January, Maurice Powell of A Little Light Music introduced us to composer and conductor Gavin Sutherland, who through his career has taken a particular interest in the work of Hayden Wood. This afternoon I'm very pleased to have as my guest the conductor Gavin Sutherland. Um, Gavin, you're not just a conductor of course, but you are a well-known composer and an arranger of music. Can you uh, tell me a little bit about your career? Where, where, Where are you at the moment in your career? At the moment in my career, I'd like to say, um, like most conductors, I'm still at the start. Um, I think we're always learning and we're always uh, adapting and improving every day. Indeed, indeed. But um, in terms of uh, where I am currently, so my day job is as music director for English National Ballet. Although I have a healthy work schedule outside of there with many of the uh, BBC orchestras, for instance, and, uh, and also quite a lot of work with um, CBSO and Liverpool Phil, and also quite a few little elements of uh, other orchestras creeping in around the world um, as the year progresses. So it promises to be uh, quite an eventful year uh, in many respects, but also never losing the fact that uh, a lot of my two great loves, ballet and light music, are rather rather more evident than most yes of course and and uh, you are much traveled i noticed that you were, you were conducting in new zealand at one point am i right or was it australia that's right that's right i used to be um a principal guest conductor of the royal new zealand ballet but uh, it was lovely earlier last year in february last year um we went to the enb went to new zealand to perform there so it was nice to you know see a few old friends and uh enjoy a little of the wine and the sunshine, whilst unfortunately in this country, everybody was thick to the gills in snow, which is uh, oh, a, a little bit, a little bit crushing, but uh, yeah. you know, occasionally you're allowed a little bit of luxury and uh, that was it. <laughs> Absolutely. First class flights out and back and all the rest of it. Excellent. Good to know. And um, my, <laughs> funnily enough, my, uh, in the early 70s, I, I, I did a couple of years uh, as a galley slave in the Royal Ballet Orchestra. 
And um, oh, yeah. I well remember being up in, in Manchester when John Lansbury was conducting, I think the last time, or it was the last tour, that Nureyev and Fontaine did together. And they, and mm-hmm. they danced um, uh, Sleeping Beauty. Um, but I remember those uh, those two years very well. Um, uh, what I remember more than the playing, apart from sort of something like 30 consecutive Giselles followed by 30 consecutive oh, yes. Swan Lakes. You have um, my extreme sympathies, Morris. <laughs> sometimes it got a bit hard going, um, but it, it was the uh, it was a very uncomfortable business, really moving around all over uh, all over the UK and staying in some pretty horrendous digs. But the but I, I remember being backstage with the dancers and, uh, and and thinking how exhausted they were most of the time and all the girls, all the petite little corps de ballet um, smoking themselves to death and eating like half a sandwich a day <laughs> to keep their weight down. And I thought, if only the if, if only the people out front could see this, um, they see the swans on stage. I have no idea the dedication and the uh, and the pain I think that goes into producing a dancer. Indeed, and it's generational as well. I mean, nowadays um, there's no smoking, uh, or very very rarely you see any of uh, any dancers smoke. No. Nowadays, you know, they you see them throwing junk food down themselves because of course they burn it off i've always said the same thing though the place you can judge the the dedication and the suffering that goes into making a dancer a female dancer in particular is look at their feet yes um i mean i've always said the same thing musicians you know we have to look the part um because of course we're seen to be performing um there are there's not much of what we're using to perform that isn't seen that sounds really strange but you know what i mean Whereas a dancer, their feet are buried in the point shoes. When you take them off, they look like they've been dipped in blackcurrant jam. And yes. so, uh, you know. And the constant fear of injury. However, moving on, um, so so the ballet obviously takes up an enormous amount of time, um, and I agree with you. Some of the some of the greatest music ever written is ballet music, um, and a lot of it could be deemed quite light these days in the current climate. Indeed, it can. Um, but getting on to light music itself, what kindled your interest in light music, and perhaps particularly British light music, Gavin? It's a very simple story. I was seven years old, and having been uh, having played the piano since the age of three essentially by ear uh, and then learning to read music a little later on a regular uh, little mozart then (laughs) not quite as prolific as he was and i'm still alive which is a good thing absolutely pays to live (laughs) (laughs) exactly so um at seven i was playing uh, trombone in an orchestra course in durham over the summer and a conducting uh, conductor that I know very well is still with us, and uh, a local conductor from uh, the Northeast called Alan Price, not the Alan Price. No. He would say, <laughs> no, I am the Alan Price. They all are the Alan Price. Uh, but he brought with him um, the London Tweet by Eric Coates. And the thing that fascinated me up front was not the music, it was the colour of the paper it was printed on, because, you know, those old <laughs> chapel uh, orchestral sets were printed on this rather... Um, yellow paper and it fascinated me and then we started to play Knightsbridge and this is an orchestra of 7 to 12 year olds having a real good stab at a piece of music and I thought my head was going to explode but where have they been keeping this it absolutely just took me and when we got to the trombones playing the big theme at the end it was like my heart was going to burst it was the most fantastic moment a piece of music in c major that had a good big tune 
and a lot of exciting orchestration around it as well. I just fell head over heels in love with this music and did what every child or every enthusiast would do. Went to a record shop and said, can I have a record of Eric Coates? Who? And um, then it became, well, we have one old record here, but uh, it's, uh, you know, it's a bit dusty, but we'll give you it for a sale price. And it was for a long time, one of the few records of light music, never mind just Eric Coates, that was available. And I always thought, I hope this changes. Even then, I thought, I hope this changes, um, that we get introduced to more of this music. Because as time went on, and I played in concert bands and other orchestras, and indeed conducted, I went to try and find as much of this music um, and old bandmasters from uh, the horses mm, yes. of services also knew this music. It was in their DNA. They knew it so well. So getting that transferred to me as well just developed a real love in me for a lot of these composers. And uh, as you mentioned, Hayden Wood being uh, amongst the top five um, of yours, certainly it's number two for me to Eric Coates. And That's, um, uh, that's really interesting. I mean, f- I, th- I think for many people, um, Coates's position um, really is unassailable. Um, obviously, after the war, um, Robert Farnan and plenty of other composers who, who were very, very influential. But certainly, oh, well, I'm glad to hear you say Coates is number one, Hayden Wood number two, Farnham possibly number three. I know these, these number three without a doubt. These Farnham charts are odious, but I think I think people that know this music perhaps as well as we do um, may may very well agree. And of course, um, our old friend Ernest Tomlinson. Well, Ernest is kind of joined third with Farnham because. Yeah. Um, I've, I've, whilst I, you know, can't uh, impress enough how important that man's influence has been, both on light music for the world and also for light music in my life, um, as well as being an incredibly talented conductor, he was one of the great light music composers. And, you know, the more I discover, even now, knowing quite a lot of his repertoire, having recorded it, performed it, and even just studied it, because that's how... I suppose I learned to arrange and learned to compose mm, yeah. studying scores. You, know, you can't learn how to write this music from a book, although obviously um, in those days these composers had their formal training, but they used it in certain ways. And um, there's no doubt that people like Farnham with his training and uh, Ernest with his at the Royal Manchester College, as it was, and so on, and Coates at the Academy, um, these people had a real serious set of classical chops, which they used um, to entertain the world with light music. And I've always vowed that if I had the opportunity to do that, I'd be a very happy man. In February, Russian pianist Yulia Chaplina visited the island. She wowed audiences with her Russian programme at Ramsey Grammar School, playing works by Prokofiev, Rachmaninoff and Tchaikovsky. As Morris Powell of Thursday Night's A Little Light Music told me confidently, she's the best pianist the Isle of Man has seen since the Second World War. 
I spoke to Yulia about the importance of this year being the year of music between Russia and the UK and the carefully curated Russian and British music concert programmes in 2019. Yulia, it's so lovely to have you with us today. We had a wonderful conversation on women today and there was so much more to talk about that, yes, Spotlight is the place to do it. You're on the Isle of Man to perform a concert uh, for the Ramsey Music Society. It's a concert focusing on Russian composers. Yes, very much so. And this has been... A- really um, thought long in advance because you know maybe you have heard but uh, UK and Russia the 2019 is the year of music between UK and Russia with various projects happening in Russia and the UK and so when I was choosing what to play for, for, for the 2019 it was um, I definitely thought I must do something um, that's connected to that wonderful theme and indeed, so my programs that I play currently are full full Russian programs, um, and I play them in various places in the UK and also Germany and 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 France. Um, and late in the year, from about June, I play sort of an old British program, and uh, I'm starting with a. Um, lovely concert at the Moscow Conservatory in August with sort of introducing contemporary British composers and maybe not very well-known English composers, uh, British composers to Russian audiences with my uh, chamber um, partner, Jonathan Deakin. We have a lovely piano duo. Um, so that's that's sort of a mix where where Russia and UK hopefully come close together <laughs> and uh, and and who knows you know culture is the way to unite countries and 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 bring joy to people doesn't matter whether it's russian music or british music or german music it's just a way to celebrate the traditions and the heritage of the countries yeah very much looking forward to that wow it sounds like a wonderful cultural exchange and like you say a really powerful way to connect to different countries uh, through the arts through music because it's a universal language absolutely and i was um actually listening to the lovely tchaikovsky um vals of the of the fleurs the flower walls in the car in the Isle of Van, where we were driving towards the radio station, I thought, how wonderful. You know, this this is Tchaikovsky talking to us, to, to people through generations, you know, from Russia, and here we are at the Isle of Man, and really the language is absolutely universal, and, and you'd listen then to Handel or Purcell. It's just something that I think is for everyone. Music is for everyone. It's really important to you that when you're playing a piece of music, we discussed on Women Today, it's not just about the the accuracy and the sort of technical detail, which we're always blown away by, but it's about the interpretation. It's about the story. How do you um, how do you sort of align yourself with the story behind pieces of music that you that you sit down to play and share with people? Oh, that's that's also a great question. I think, firstly, you have to choose a piece that you're particularly drawn to. So it's very interesting. Like, for example, I'm now going to say something really controversial. I'm not drawn to Chopin now. As if this, as of this moment, I've played loads of Chopin in my life, and I love it, but it's just at this moment in my life... I don't I don't feel a special connection. So Chopin is now not featured in my programs. Um, 
I have, because I'm so drawn to this. I mean, you know, I'm 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 Russian and I'm I'm British as well. And I don't know, do I feel now very Russian? Do I feel very British? I guess I'm I'm really a mix um, at the moment, and I do care as as of this point in my life about the relationship between the two countries. And then, you know, if I play the Russian music for for British people in the UK, I feel certain sort of responsibility or certain uh, personal feelings when, when I play that. And simultaneously, when I, I go to Russia and present British programs to the Russian public, I feel then another responsibility, you know, bringing the best of the UK there. And, you know, we will have... Um, ongoing collaboration um with uh, um you know partners in russia and partners in the uk to try and have that exchange going so i you know this in a way is how i create my story how i create my program for at least this year you know and last year it was all french because it was 100 years centenary from debussy's death and i've organized um a, a lovely festival with loads of young people participating masterclass with a french music you know i love debussy and it was so much fun to choose programs um, of composers who were Debussy's friends, and I, I just, I guess, I just like a story around the pieces I play, and connect, and just rather than picking anything and say, well, that's a concert for you, I always try to have a, yeah, have a bit of a background to it and and certain things that excites me you know I try to pick something that excites me at a certain moment in life and then find a suitable program I mean your career has taken you all around the world you must have played more pianos than you can remember when you when you arrive at a venue how do you approach a new piano you must have to kind of I don't know almost make friends with it maybe they must all have such different personalities and have you ever had to say to a host of a of a concert that you're involved in I'm terribly sorry but this this one just doesn't work <laughs> well fortunately I have been fortunate to be out of these situations <laughs> because if you are putting a concert and uh, you you are half um, sort of responsible <laughs> to to provide a good enough instrument. But um, yeah, I must say, for example, where I grew up in Russia, in the conservatoire, the instruments are not of the best quality, at least in their studio rooms. And you had to fight sometimes with the mechanics. But do you know what? I... I find it I find it very interesting. So the, the piano that you have for practice, it mustn't be really very good because then it does all the work for you. Because I'm a, actually I'm a Steinway artist and I go to Steinways a lot to practice in London and they have most fabulous pianos you can you can practice on. And do you know what I find? I find that the piano just does the work for you. You you, you can you can you'd almost just your practice becomes playing, which is completely the wrong way around to think about it because you actually have to work and, and improve things in your practice. So um, it's, it's a paradox in a way, but I think the, the harder piano you practice on, the easier it gets to play on, on an instrument that you're given. But, I mean, instruments are temperamental and they, they, they need certain time to get you know accustomed to. But, yeah, it's always, it's always almost... Uh, a little mystery what 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 awaits you there but i i usually have no problems all touch wood <laughs>
the very same programme, it was a bit of a special edition, we had the one and only Monty Don, who told us what he finds so inspiring about Japanese gardens. First of all, I had a, a fascination for Japanese gardens because when I was a student, light years ago, I got very interested in Zen Buddhism and uh, was sort of semi-serious about it, but realised that I'd have to learn Japanese to really take it forward and I was too idle to do that so so that fell by the wayside but that that sort of stayed in me and then about 12 years ago I went to Japan and filmed Zen temple gardens but I realized when I got there that there was so much more to it than just Zen I mean that was one aspect and it was fascinating but but that really is just one not small but but it's one facet of Japanese life and Japanese gardens so to have the opportunity to go back and really explore the whole range of Japanese gardens. And I realized very quickly that you can't do it just by looking at their gardens. You have to explore their whole culture because gardens are both part of their culture and reflect their culture. And this is, so for example, calligraphy and flower arranging are connected to gardening umbilically. You, you really can't do one without the other. Uh, and that flower arranging uh, is based from painting, uh, and and so on and so forth, and that the 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 first and the sort of great expo expo exponents I can't speak um, of the tea ceremony and of ikebana flower arranging were samurai warriors, and so that, and then you have obviously the the influence of the temples and and the Zen temples, but also. Uh, other aspects of Buddhist temples, making gardens. From, well, the earliest gardens I visited was 700, uh, but going right through, particularly from the medieval period, up through um, the Edo period, which went from 1603 right through to 1850, uh, and the Meiji period that followed it was, was, was westernized. So this is a long, rich seam of cultural tradition, of which gardens are part. I don't know if this would be a fair observation, but from an outsider's perspective, um, what you've talked about so far is about um, sort of Zen-infused traditional Japanese culture, um, which is you know very much connected to the gardens, as you say. Would it would it be fair to say that um, that contemporary Japanese culture seems to be more about um, an escapism through sort of bizarre poppy frivolity? And if you'd agree with that, would that contrast be evident in any Japanese gardens you've seen? Um, I'm going to answer it in reverse, really, because the contrast between this extraordinary embracing of, of what I think of as kitsch, really. I mean, it's what we called when we were filming the Hello Kitty syndrome. Um, and it's it's a kind of celebration of both the extremes. The Japanese love extremes of, of all kinds, some of which, which is disturbing for us, um, and some of which is frivolous, and some of which is very creative. Uh, but that has to be set in the context of the extreme formality and adherence to cultural norms that run right through, I mean, so strongly through all aspects of society. So it's shaking that off. And also, uh, it tends to come from outside. Is the Japanese need a kind of outside influence to, to throw off the shackles, as might be seen, of convention. Um, it doesn't often, and this is a huge generalization, get generated from within, because culturally it's so difficult to do that. And being an outsider, being an outlaw, um, which an artist really has to be to a certain extent, 
is, is a very extreme position to adopt in Japan. So therefore, it tends to be expressed in a very extreme way. In gardens, you don't see it so much. But I mean, you see it in odd ways. So for example, I visited a garden uh, in Yokohama on a, on a railway rooftop made by a Zen monk. And it's a rock garden. And it's very pure, and you know he told me the whole sort of story about it, and and uh, and what have you. And there's a whopping great vending machine, sort of by the entrance to the garden. And it, to my eye, was such an anomaly. I mean, it it, it was so weird to have it there. But he, I asked him about it, and he said, no, well, you know, it's just there. It's fine. Don't look at it. And then I visited another house uh, of a gallery owner made by a very groovy architect, a beautiful house, modern, five stories, really exciting, like sort of made, created like a whole series of jumble of boxes, which built in gardens onto every level on the outside of the building. So up six floors up, you would have sort of trees growing out the side of the building and one thing or another. And outside the door, an incredible tangle of wires and sort of street furniture, but not in a good way to our eye, you know, just, just a genuine mess. And I said, how do you feel about it? I said, that's Tokyo. That's just the way it is. So I think that the Japanese are much better at accommodating seemingly incompatible uh, entities within one picture. I don't know if that answers your question, but it's something that struck us very, very strongly when we were there. Absolutely, it does. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was a lovely answer. Um, and I'm very curious about whether all of those experiences and observations have influenced your own garden uh, design or practices in any way. I think what's influenced me are, are two things. One is the concept of ma, this this ma, the which and it simply means the importance of the space between things. And it could be two branches of a tree that you prune. It could be two words, that the pause is really significant. In music, the interval between notes. Um, obviously, in things like calligraphy or flower arranging, the, the gaps that you create, the space. And we all sort of know that. You know, we all know that uh, the space between things is part of design. But in Japan, it's absolutely fundamental. It's really of the essence. And I think that everybody can apply that. And I certainly can in my own garden. And I think the other thing which was just brought home to me again and again is that no detail is too small to be beautiful. So if you're tying something up, use a beautiful twine. Make sure the knot is very beautiful. You know, if you're, if you're doing something that seems incidental, it is as important as anything else in the garden. And... I think that as a gardener, I don't do that. And I think as a culture, we don't do that. We forgive things that we think of as being slightly lesser or slightly less important. There is a rigor to Japanese culture in general, but gardens in particular, that doesn't allow for any of that. And I, and I think that's a good lesson to learn. That's a lovely observation. I think that definitely comes across in your work. Um, how you feel about gardening as a creative pursuit? Um, because, I mean, when we talk about creativity, we talk about the practical aspect, but also um, the, the ethics, the, the intent behind it. Um, what, what does that mean to you as a, as a gardener? I think, uh, to me personally, it means everything. I think that, that gardening is and should always be celebrated as a creative act. Um, a garden, by default, is a work of art. Now, it may be a bad work of art. 
you know, it does, it's just because something is creative, it doesn't make it good. There's plenty of bad art in this world. That's up to you, and that's up to the beholder. But I think to ignore or dismiss that aspect of gardening is to limit its potential unforgivably. And the British, over the last hundred years, and it is only over the last hundred or so years, have have made gardening a very prosaic thing, have have focused on the process rather than the end result, and gardening and technique and the right way to do it and the expertise involved has rather overwhelmed the result and the artistic creation. And yet, we all love it. We all visit beautiful gardens, and we recognize beauty when we see it. We recognize poetry when we see it. Um, and I just think that we can be more open about that and say, yeah, that's what I do in my garden. I'm making a work of art, and I love it, and it's enriching, and it's feeding me. I hope you like it too. Sarah, you guys are doing some kind of felt dance. What's going on here? We are making a vegetarian sheepskin rug. So it will be, as you can see, the, the um, fleece of the Teeswater sheep is underneath, yeah. and then we felt the bit that you cut out from cut off from the sheep at the butt end, yeah. and felt it. Yeah. And then if and here's one we did yesterday, so you can see, oh this goodness. is what it will turn into. Oh, and it's stunning! Sheep are grown in Patrick on the Isle of Man. Oh wow! So and we have a few here for people to see. Oh yeah, that but that's completely local. Gosh, yeah. Sorry, it's such a, um, an exhausting exercise. It looks like it's sort of like a like a Nuno felting kind of process. So we've got the we've got the curly um, sort of decorative side underneath, and then as you say, like the sort of the softer um, sheep's wool as the next layer, and um, and then you've got your neck curtain and your bubble wrap right at the bottom there, and you're trampling it all through. Uh, trying to, and I saw you scrubbing with soap as well yeah, earlier. So first of all, to make it felt, you need to have hot water, agitation, and olive oil soap. Lovely. So we put all those on, um, get it so it's uh, in the shape that we want it, uh-huh. and then you start the hard work of agitating it and felting it. Hence <laughs> <Really>? dancing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thankfully we've got the uh, the fectones providing some uh, well, some music in the background. The fectone fleece, because it's the one that we did here. The fectone fleece. Well, there you have it. Um, well, good luck. I hope it all goes well. Thank you for <laughs> thank you for thank you for chatting and dancing at the same time and observing the madness. <laughs> but you have to have fun. That is the rule. So we are having oh, fun. So it's lovely to see Glenmore Cottage Retreat so alive with creativity and good eggs. It's been amazing. Absolutely amazing. We've had a great day. We've had cake and we've had more cake and we've had music and the kids have played and the sheep have eaten the grass and pooed everywhere and (laughs) we've made fleece rugs and dyed wool and it's been wonderful. Mm -hmm. Because it was kind of um, like fibre arts was sort of the focus of the displays this year and the events. Well, we are collectively called Fibre Space Isle of Man and um, we're all weavers, spinners, dyers, crafters, felters. So collectively, we, we do all this creation, but we're not really we're not really individually 
for shops and things like that. Mm. Well, I think Sarah is a bit, isn't she? Mm. But this place is uh, wonderful. It lends itself as a perfect place for people to come and hang out. And we have our exhibition panels next door. I don't know, have you seen them? Oh, yeah, I spotted them on the way yeah. in, yeah. So they yeah. went to Woolfest last yeah. year. Um, and that was the island's best crafters, really. Yeah. All that stuff on there, just so nice, yeah. Mm -hmm. So we're raising money. That's that's the main thing. Um, we're, we're sharing our craft. We're, we're showing people how you dye wool. We're showing people where the wool comes from. Obviously, people must know they come from sheep, but seeing the sheep mm -hmm. and, um, and seeing all the curls and then carding it and spinning it and weaving it and, and felting it. And, um, and everybody's had a great time. It's fantastic and um, yes we have the opportunity to enjoy Glenmore Cottage Retreat um, during the art festival but you also run uh, workshops through the year and different um, different little kind of events now and then. I do, um, so we have a few little things pop up, um, I've got a retreat workshop that you can book here if you want, I've got some workshops going on at Tinwald on Tinwald Day where Fibre Space will probably come to and We'll share all of our stuff. Um, I do some crafting workshops and bracelet making, uh, traditional skills and bracelets. And, and it's free and it's a fundraiser as well. Um, so you can buy kits and, uh, and the money goes to charity. Mm -hmm. The charity. Now that's the important thing. So the cakes, as you can see, we've got lots and lots of lovely cakes and we've got a raffle. And the money's going to be split between um, most definitely Bridge the Gap um, Bridge the Gap is a wonderful charity. Everybody should look it up and support it. Uh, and the community farm, which we always like to support the community farm. And there we heard from Sarah Hogg and also Sue Quilliam of Glenmore Cottage Retreat in Solby. And they were demonstrating wool crafts at the Isle of Man Art Festival. Spotlight, brought to you by the Isle of Man Arts Council. It's Sarah Hendy here and you're listening to the 2019 Spotlight Review of the Year. We're going back through some of the highlights of this year's Spotlight programmes. And our next interview was with Dr Daisy Fancourt, who joined us in the spring to discuss the value of creativity. So we've known for a while that creative activities are beneficial for mental health, but I think we've not really been sure about is how is it that when you're doing a creative activity, it actually affects your emotions. And that's what we were able to look at with the Great British Creativity Test. And we've actually been able to see three very clear ways that creativity reg regulates our emotions. So it can help us in terms of distracting us from stresses in our lives. It can give us the time and the space to reappraise our problems or think differently about them. And it can also boost our sense of self-esteem and confidence so we, see, we feel more capable of tackling new challenges. And um, when you talk about avoiding stress, um, I, I'm wondering, I'm wondering in, in what context, how, how can that be helpful? Well, there can be certain stresses in our lives that are ongoing stresses. So whilst we might be able to find certain ways to help improve them, it's not necessarily going to be helpful just to dwell on them all the time. So it's really good to be able to give ourselves a bit of a break from that. And that's what creative activities can do very naturally. They provide a very immersive, mindful world, uh, for example, painting or knitting or gardening, where you can just forget everything else that's going on and give yourself a bit of a breather. And in terms of um, bringing more, uh, becoming more creative and encouraging more creative activities in your own everyday life, it can be as simple as sort of mixing up your routine. What kind of creative activities would you encourage someone to sort of take part in if, if perhaps they've been sort of out of the sort of creative world for a little while? 
Well, I guess it depends what your interests are. What we do know is that doing something that you enjoy is always linked in with stronger benefits for mental health and well-being. Uh, but I think there are there are lots of activities that people can do without having any particular talent for. Like you could you could try your hand at painting for the first time, or you could try and grow something in a garden, um, or you could decide that you're going to start reading a new book. And what we do know from research and from the research that we've conducted for the Great British Creativity Test is that you don't need to be good at things for them to have benefits. You actually, it's genuinely the taking part that counts. Um, and the, the tell us tell us a bit more about how how our brains function when we're being creative and and what kind of effect that has sort of the, the sciency side of things. So we know from research that we see benefits um, from creative activities, both from psychological measures, looking at things like people's anxiety or depression levels, perhaps, or their levels of well-being. Uh, but we also see these results biologically. So, for example, we find reductions in stress hormones and reductions in levels of inflammation in the immune system that are associated with conditions like depression from taking part. And this is really exciting because we're essentially seeing this psychological and biological benefit of creativity from the studies that are ongoing. Richard Cole visited the island in the summer to play the mighty Wurlitzer in the Villa Marina Arcade and he gave us a full tour of this incredible instrument. Each Wurlitzer organ has sets of pipes in it to give the different sounds and the sets of pipes that are in mine differ from the ones that are in here. So, you know, a small band might have a saxophone and not a clarinet, and another one might have a clarinet and not a saxophone. And that is the case here. My organ's got a saxophone in it, and there isn't one here. And also, because this room is quite different to my music room at home, the acoustics are different. And even if I put the same stops down here that I've got on my organ at home, the effect is different. So when I come here to play, I've got to balance the sounds quite differently in order to get the effects that I want. And what did you choose for the piece that you just kindly played for us? You've got a few, um, a few of those switches flipped down. What, what have you gone for? The piece of music I played was called An Earful of Music. And back in the 30s, that was the signature tune of an organist called Robinson Cleaver. And he opened the organ that I've now got at home in April 1937 in the Ritz Cinema, Barnsley in Yorkshire, and that was his signature tune, An Earful of Music. I did meet Robbie Cleaver many years ago. He's sadly no longer with us, but I've sort of semi-officially adopted his signature tune as mine. Mm-hmm. And what, what instruments were involved in, um, in the piece that you've just played? What, what could we hear there? Well, shall I demonstrate one or yeah. two of them? Yes, please do. We've got the tibia here, which is the typical sound of a cinema organ, which is just a big flute. But what gives it the typical sound of the cinema organ is to put the vibrato into the sound as orchestral instruments are played with the vibrato. And it turns from this to this. straight away the organ begins to sing and get that orchestral effect. Behind these glass panels here there are, I don't know how many pipes in this one, just under a thousand, but pipes just like a church organ, they're just voiced differently to get these orchestral sounds. And uh, I know mine at home has got 876 pipes in it. The longest one is about 16 feet long, but it's doubled round on itself a bit like a trombone is, so that the pipe to get it into a reasonable ceiling height. And the shortest one is about 
three eighths of an inch long. You can see I'm old fashioned, still working in inches. About, about three quarters of a centimetre, in other words, in, in modern day measurement. Young Frank Jockin from Peel won a special award for his composition in the autumn when the Isle of Man Freethinkers Society invited local musicians to compose a piece to be played at the Isle of Man Freethinkers Remembrance Service. How long have you been playing the violin? Because to be as good as you are at 10 years old, you must have been doing this for quite some time. I think I've been doing it for about six years, so I started when I was four um, with a teacher um, from Wales. So, yeah. Oh yeah, of course, because you, you were born in Wales, were you? Yeah. You grew up in Wales for a little bit before you so came to Alaman. I only was with her for about, I don't know, two years, I think, because we moved here mm-hmm. four years ago. So I think it must have been about two years I was getting taught by the Welsh fiddle teacher. Yeah. And did you have one of those tiny, tiny little violins? Yeah, I had the quarter size. It is tiny. Um, yeah, it was very small. Me trying to play one now would be hard, I think. <laughs> I had to try on the Wenders Barbie fiddle, <laughs> and it it was a bit too small, I think. Yeah. But the funny thing about the violin is, like, um, not no discredit to piano players or anything, but you've got all the notes there, yeah. they're all there ready for you, whereas with the violin, you've got to, you've got to learn how to make the notes for yeah. yourself. Can you remember whether, yeah. like, did you, did you enjoy it when you started playing it, or was it a little bit of a, oh, okay, I'll give this a go? Well, I, I think, I quite liked the idea of it, and I, I, I wanted to play an instrument. Um, I, I was getting a bit frustrated with it when I started, but now I've got to understand all of the notes a bit better and the names of which fingers go down in which strings and stuff. So I think it's not really that like frustrating with all the notes and stuff. It's just, yeah, I think mm-hmm. I'm getting better at doing stuff like that as yeah. well. Well, well done you, because it all comes from hard work. Like, you know, people are, I think people can be born with music in them and you're from such a musical family that, you know, it's it's natural to think that that's where all of the all of the wonderful playing comes from and that must be a big part of it but also a lot of it is just down to practice and hard work how many times um a week do you think you practice or do you practice every day and if so like how long do you play for well i play for about 10 minutes every day on a weekday i don't really play on the weekends except for maybe if i was playing a kaylee with my granddad or something like that but um yeah i practice pretty much every day for about 10 minutes that's great. That's really good dedication. And it's just like little and often, little and often, it just keeps building up, doesn't it? And, um, and I mean, yeah, you mentioned the Kayleys. That's something else. Like you don't just do your lessons and do your grades and everything, which you're very good at. You, you also perform in front of people and it's quite a regular thing. Like when we were in Lorient and your dad was doing a gig with David Kilgallen, he was like, oh, I've got some special guests to invite to the stage. And I couldn't believe when you got up there and played all of the tunes that he was playing on his accordion and David was playing on his fiddle and he had the keys out and everything. How does it feel when you get to go on the stage and perform with your granddad or your dad or perform like your mum's dancing and things like that because she, she plays the fiddle as well doesn't she um yeah she does a little bit she's actually got Sophia Morrison's fiddle 
so she didn't play it for a long time because it was on exhibition but um she does know how to play it yeah <laughs> um when you were saying about playing with my dad i think it's pretty cool to be playing with my dad even if you know he plays with a different band it, it feels amazing to yeah. do gigs with my dad yeah what grade are you on now well actually at the moment i just started working on my grade five the way my fiddle teachers set it out it's basically i did a gr grade one and then we waited for like two months maybe and did some folk and trad and stuff so i could get better at that um and obviously scheduling helped with that a lot um and then we just carried on doing it about every two months like we started a new one so yeah so so you've gone through your grades pretty pretty quickly then um yeah mm -hmm. um yeah i think i prefer doing that than just doing one like once a year because that mm. it'll take a long time to get through them or i'd be like and i think i just get a bit bored of the same thing like i like to have a challenge like from now i'm not i'm not allowed to listen to the pieces i have to sight read them which is a good challenge because i'm not that good at sight reading that much because i don't really do it because i'm more used to playing folk than classical but it it's a good challenge doing the grades mm -hmm. yeah do you think um with folk music do you think you learn a lot by ear do you sort of pick bits and pieces up well yeah i um hear a lot at the manx festivals and stuff like i hear people playing them a lot and then i pick them up um in my head and stuff and yeah but most loads of the tunes that i've learned are from katie like when i've been going to her lessons she's been playing them bit by bit and then i've just been like copying and then we just put them all together um yeah for grade five you got to sit quite a big theory exam as well how are you finding that well i don't really <laughs> like the idea of theory but well i've got this book on theory and i can fill it in all the gaps and stuff so it makes it easier and i can work about i'm working on how to figure out the keys of music and like how many sharps and flats and stuff like that because you know the theory it's quite it's hard yeah, yeah. telling me <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, no mean feat, my friend. You're doing really, really well on that. Um, do you think that maybe, like, going to the festivals and going to the concerts and the Kayleys and everything and playing with Sketh and Jig is where you kind of soak up all the folk music and what maybe, like, something that sort of helps you, inspire you when you're writing your own music? Because when I heard your piece, um, if I hadn't seen you on the video, I wouldn't have known that it was you playing or anything. Um it's quite amazing that you wrote something, it's beautiful. I mean, I could never have even considered trying to write a piece of music when I was 10. Um, so, like, well done to you, but where, where do you think the ideas came from? Is it just through soaking up music and you sort of have a little play around or something? Or do you, um, I don't know, have a, have a different way of approaching it? Well, I mainly write all my tunes when I'm bored. <laughs> when I, I usually just go to my room and have a little mess around like i play to my dad's cds like with the band and like to the cd yeah. tracks um and then i just pick up little bits 
that I can add and then I just put it all together. And my like my dad lets me go on his computer and like write it on Sibelius and stuff mm. like that. So it's I can remember. So I I quite enjoy it. Yeah. It it gives me something to do when I'm bored and maybe it can be handy for the future. Absolutely. I mean, what a productive way to spend your time when you're bored. So, so you're kind of like jamming along with your, with your dad's CDs and sort of adding your own little melodies to it. Well, yeah, well, my dad, me and my dad do sometimes when the girls are out, like my little sister and my mum, we have a little play together and sometimes, like a few weeks ago, I did. we did a thing, I learnt some new Swedish tunes from Katie and I... My dad wanted to learn them, so I taught him something, and then he taught me a Mab on set. <laughs> and yeah, it just that's how we do things sometimes. Like, I teach him a tune, and then he teaches me a tune, and then we just have a little play together upstairs. And we finish our review of the year with a lovely poem by our current Manx bard, Zoe Cannell. This is one that um, I wrote for the Manx Music Festival years ago. There's a, a, a poetry competition, which probably people don't really know about. It's something I'm actually also involved on the executive committee of that. And they, they have a writing competition within that, which I don't think many people know about. But it's certainly another avenue and outlet for any budding writers. They have prose and poetry competition. And this is one that I wrote for that. And it was about Scarlet. And at the time, um, I was having, you know, it's quite a difficult period in my life when my father had just passed away suddenly. And um, I used to go to Scarlet and I would look out over, you know, the whole area and I was proud to be Manx and I, it was Christmas time and everybody was dashing around all over the place and I just kind of wanted to get away to have some reflective time. Um, so this is from, you know, we'll, we'll be nearly 12 years ago now, but... Um, just reflecting that Christmas for everybody isn't fun and rushing around. Sometimes people can be quite sad. And, and hopefully, I um, whenever I went to Scarlet and sat and looked out, I, I was quite thoughtful and reflective. It's called just called Christmas at Scarlet. It's upon us once more, festive folk fighting for tinsel, turkeys and toys, gifts, games, goodies galore, scuttle swarming, Strand Street, many mates you may meet, churlish chums chattering, swapping scandal and skeet, shopping shapes Christmas Eve, heavy hampers you heave, and though cross crazy crowds, wildly, wistfully weave. People prod, push and pull, clash, collide, cram and crush, digging deep to delight, rummage and rush. But my soul turns away from this torturous abyss to the beauty at scarlet, my rapturous bliss, immediately transported to the majestic expanse of such a tranquil haven, instantaneous trance. With its lavender skies and cerulean sea, and where wildlife wanders nomadically free, a landscape appealing, no blots whatsoever, and a coastline that seems to stretch out forever. Swooping down into Ronald's way, craft large and small, and as a warning to sailors, a lighthouse stands tall. Mellow riffing of waves as the tide ambles out, an enchantment of Christmas resounding throughout. Like a grace from a stumble, the bracing breeze stings, distant echoes of a wireless the sweet choir sings, a cappella, a carol with classical feel, evoking, provoking, spiritually surreal. A snapshot of the winter, a true work of art, a paradisical lookout, this view stops my heart. Of the south of the island, for it can scarce compare such a peaceful illusion you won't find elsewhere. 
Great greenness at scarlet, pure not like a tree decorated so cheaply with tawdry debris. The horizon shows structures with Castletown charm. I want to keep walking in this unsullied calm. And if I listen so closely, I can almost hear whispered voices of those who are not with us this year. Glance up to the skies, and I'm sure they are near. And as scarlet as heaven, they really are here. Our lost friends always felt in my heart and my mind, blowing through the manx air and are ne'er left behind. We live in this kingdom, joy, freedom and space, our island perfection, our palace, our place. And there we have just some of the special moments we've enjoyed on Spotlight this year. If you'd like to be part of the programme, just email spotlight at manxradio.com and let us know what's going on. We'll be happy to celebrate your creative endeavours. For now... Blen Vinor, Happy New Year to you all. <laughs> <laughs>